your rest that you give. I pray, God, you give us ears to hear and help us to understand this and just here in 2021. And, and I pray, Lord, as we look at these words, God, we would see the practical implications for our life. And I pray, Lord, your spirit would speak and reveal yourself in a, in a powerful way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, I want you to go back to the passage we read a little earlier. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 that Charlie read. And I want us to look at this because today the title of the message is the rest of God. The rest, the rest God brings, the rest God provides, the rest of God. And we read in that passage in Matthew 11. And I want you to think about this. We've been talking about how Hebrews is the Old Testament is the promise. New Testament is fulfillment. Old Testament is shadow. New Testament is substance. I want to read this verse and I want you to be thinking about shadow, substance, promise, fulfillment. And I want you to think as to how it pertains to the new covenant. So Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, as we move into Hebrews chapter 4, Last time we were together, we were talking about this rest. We saw the passage that demonstrated that this rest was not received by the children of Israel in the wilderness. They neglected it. And so when we move into chapter four, it's important just to get a sense of this as we start. So let's look at chapter four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhat spoken of the seventh day, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Before we look at different types of rest, four of them to be exact, in this passage, I want us just to read the opening again. 
therefore, and, and the therefore goes back to chapter three, to 16 through 19 and verse seven through 11, as he explained the hardened hearts of unbelief of the people of Israel. And if you go back to chapter three, verse seven, notice how he describes them. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. As I soar in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When we move into chapter four then, being reminded of that, therefore, and you know, as he ends the section in verse um, 16, 17, 18, 19, we, we see in verse one of chapter four, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Look at the burden of this passage here. And what we find is that he's calling these people. He's calling them to understand the serious nature of this. That this rest and this promise is still available let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And verse two goes on to explain, for good news came to us just as to them. They had heard the good news. The people that Hebrews was writing to were hearing good news. The people in the day of the children of Israel were hearing good news. But he says, don't repeat the same mistake. Don't follow the same formula. What was the wrong formula in the Old Testament? They heard the good news, but did they receive it with faith? No, what did they do? They heard the, the news, but they received it with unbelief. And so here he's saying, look, don't repeat the same mistake. Don't receive it with the lack of faith. Receive it and let it be united with faith and believe on Christ. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. When you look at a passage like this, there's so much debate on some of these texts as to whether or not his primary audience is the Christian or his primary audience is the individual who literally was potentially going to commit apostasy. They were going to fall away because they never were truly saved to begin with. And I think we've got to remember something in the back of our mind. I think it'd be wise to keep not an either or approach, but a both and. And what I mean by that is, is that I think what the Holy Spirit does here as we continue to move through verse 11 is that he takes this passage as a warning for people that would be in the midst of the church. I, was, I heard one person say it like this. It would be like, Imagine you are enamored with a restaurant. Some of you are. I'm enamored with a lot of restaurants. But imagine you were enamored with a restaurant, and I was like, tell me your favorite restaurant. And you're like, oh, this place is amazing. Let me tell you about their appetizers. Let me tell you about their, their steaks, their chicken. No, this place is so good they don't even have chicken. Steaks, they've got big dollar items. Their fish. Their catch of the day, 
there's salads. And you went on and on and on. And you gave me the menu. And I said, let me ask you something. Tell me, um, so is the food really good? And you said, I've never ate at the restaurant. I'd be like, what? You memorized the menu? That's weird. That's really weird. You memorized the menu, but you've never partaken of the food. That's exactly what's happening. There's people that go to church weekly, but they're never changed by the message. Never. They hear about the gospel and they even pride themselves in intellectually agreeing with it. Like, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I believe in Jesus. I believe that. And I'm even at times thinking that the text is really amazing and how it's laid out. I might even enjoy a few sermons here and there. I like this. I believe it. I go. But the problem is they never partake. Their response is never with faith. And one of the dangers that he's giving here, he's like, look, you, know, you remember in the New Testament how often you hear passages like, brothers, make your calling and election sure. It's the idea of, you know, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's not this sense of, oh, be careful. Those truly in Christ can fall away. We've gone through that. That's not the point. That's not even biblical. Because First John says they went out from us in order to demonstrate that not all of them are of us. So one of the marks of Christianity is that the Spirit enables Christians to persevere. So when there's a lack of perseverance, there's a problem. So in this passage, it's as if he's saying, look, don't be deceived. One of the means that God uses to open up eyes of people that are deceived in the faith are passages like this, where they go, wait a minute, my life is not one of belief. When's the last time that the word of God persuaded your actions? When's the last time that the word of God persuaded how you lived? You see, sometimes the sad reality is, is if we start tracing our life, we go, wait a minute, God's word doesn't have any type of impact on the way I live. I assent to these beliefs on paper, but it's not there. And here you see the author calling out and saying, look, be careful, be, be understand, understand the, the example of, of Israel. Take this serious. But then we start to get into this. We, we, we start to get in these four types of rest. I was looking at this, and this is a really difficult passage. I think is if we read it, and, and maybe you were reading with me, and you were thinking, this is sort of complicated. Because he mentions the word rest over and over and over, and he uses it in different ways throughout this passage. I, I'll tell you, um, I, I looked at so many different things and, and different resources. Sam Storms really helped me with this. Um, really to just get suitcase handles on it. I feel like sometimes when you approach a text like this, you just got to get some handles to sort of wade through. And I think this approach is wise. Four types of rest. Four types of rest that we're going to examine in verses 1 through 11. The first type that we're going to see there, really from moving in verse 2 to verse 3 into verse 4, is creation rest. Creation rest. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now notice the next phrase. Although his works 
were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. What is going on here? It it appears that what he's doing is that he is alluding to Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two, we read in those first three verses about what takes place after the creation on the seventh day. And we read in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's as if, as he starts this treatise on rest, he wants to make sure they understand that the rest that is spoken of originated with God. It's his rest. And if you wanna get an idea of his rest, you gotta go to the creation order. And there you see it because he's gonna use this later on in verse 10, but he's speaking of rest that comes from God. Rest that came at the end of the creation, day seven, and he speaks about this. God created the world, he rested, and he wants them to get the fact that rest is what God establishes. And I think there's a subtle sense and reminder here that if we are going to experience this rest, I think one of the questions you gotta have in the back of your mind right now is like, what in the world is that? Like, what is he trying to get them to see? What does it mean to rest? I've got this idea of what rest means to me, but what does it mean for the Christian? What is it, why is there an invitation maybe for those that are lost to come into the rest? What is happening here? And I think he's gonna show them that, look, this rest is something that you can't experience outside of receiving it from God. You can't make it happen. You see, if, if you understand that this rest is outside of you, it is a futile blow to works. Because, you know, so many people, when they think of religion, I mean, if you look at all the religions of the world, the only one different from the stands alone is Christianity because in every system, it's works-based. It's what you do to earn the merit of God. Christianity is completely different. God establishes the rest and we have to receive it. It's something that he gives as a gift of his grace. It's not something we attain to. And if we think we can attain Christianity by what we do, it goes complete contrast to what we read in chapter four. So we see a creation rest. But we move along here and we begin to see another type of rest. We we see a creation rest and we come into a promised land rest. You may be thinking, what in the world is happening now? Well, what he's doing is when the children of Israel left Egypt, they observed the works of God, didn't they? I mean, think about what they experienced. They experienced the plagues of of God towards Egypt. And and that last plague was culminated in the Passover. And and, and so many things were happening. And, and, And as the death angel passed through the camp and the Firstborn was protected because of God's provision of the blood on the doorpost as it was picturing Christ, 
another shadow that substance is fulfilled in Christ. They left after Pharaoh said, get out of here. They experienced God's protection going over the sea. They saw the hand of God in killing the army. They went into the wilderness. And what did God do? He met their needs. He, he was faithful. Yet now what happens? We saw last time that even after all that God had done, what did they do? They did not believe they were hardened in their heart. And so what happens? We see that they failed to enter the rest that God had for them. And that rest was pictured by what? Something called the promised land. The promised land. That's, that's the, the land of Canaan. And, and so we, we saw two of them go in. The rest were disobedient. What happens? Who is the leader that God raises up after Moses' death? A man by the name of Joshua. And he's mentioned here. And, and what happens is he's mentioned, and we get into verse 7 and verse 8. We read in verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, this is amazing. And just put your thinking cap on here. What he's doing is he's saying the rest that is spoken of in Hebrews 4 was not fulfilled by Joshua when he brought the people into the land of Canaan. It was fulfilled ultimately by Christ. Now, this is fun because you go back to chapter one and you put things together and you say, wait a minute, what is he doing in chapter one? He's saying Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater. These people that were tempted to go back to Judaism, what is he saying? Why would you go back to Judaism? Jesus is greater. He's supreme. He's the God man. He's perfect. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. We, he did prophets, angels, Moses. And now what is he saying? He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Joshua because we could go to Joshua chapter 21 and in Joshua 21, we could read about how they entered the land and received rest. And what did that rest look like in the land of Canaan? It looked like not having people immediately trying to come in and battle them in war. It looked like them being successful in their battles. It looked like agricultural blessing on the land. But, but here's the thing. Was it the rest that God was speaking of in the new covenant? No, wasn't that rest. It, it was a foreshadowing of it in some ways, but that wasn't the fulfillment. And, it, and it's as if what he does in these verses here is say, okay, let me give you an example. If you're even wondering how can it not be fulfilled by Joshua, why would he mention Psalm 95? Because Psalm 95 is under King David. And that comes years later after Joshua's experience. And what did Hebrews do? Hebrews is now putting the same passage as he quote, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, saying, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. This is amazing. You know what he's doing? He's saying the God who invited the people of Israel to experience his rest. The God who called King David to call on Israel during his days as king to experience his rest is the same God 
who has fulfilled this vision of rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if he says, look, don't you ever take it for granted because God has worked so graciously. That same offer of rest now extends to you and you see the fulfillment. You're not looking at the shadow. He builds this argument and it's as if he's saying, look, don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Don't walk away from it. Don't don't take it for granted. This is something that God has brought to you in Jesus, and it was fulfilled. I'll tell you a fascinating thing that I learned in this. What I learned is is that, and if you've got different translations, how many of you in here are carrying a King James Version? Anybody? King James Version. Anybody in here? Uh, The King James only group will not meet after church. The, the, uh, okay, so if you had a King James, the If you add a King James in verse eight, it doesn't say Joshua. You know what it says? It says Jesus. It says Jesus. And this has thrown people. They said, wait a minute. Why did the King James Version put Jesus in verse eight and not Joshua? Well, I'll tell you why. It's the same word in the Greek. Now, wait a minute. This is really cool. There's not a scholar alive that's conservative on the planet today that believes that translation should say Jesus in verse eight because it's Joshua speaking of the promised land, speaking of that. But what is fascinating is it makes you wonder if there's this unique, unique play on the name because when you look at that in the King James, you're reminded it wasn't fulfilled in Joshua. It was fulfilled in Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's like, he's saying, look, Joshua didn't bring you this rest. Only Christ can bring you this rest. This morning, you may be with us and you're thinking, you know, I've got so many dreams for my life. I want to do this. I remember thinking at a certain age, I was like, yeah, by 22, isn't it funny how you think? By 22, I want to be doing this. By 25, I want to be married and be doing this. And then by 30, I'll do this. And, and, and sometimes you just, and hey, it's great to dream. It's great to dream and look out there, but it's just funny looking back. But, but here's the problem. The problem is, is that the world sends you a bill of goods. It is, it is putting on display. It's like, it, it's trying to attract you and it's calling out to you to say, hey, if you wanna find real meaning, if you wanna find pleasure and satisfaction, if you wanna really get to the heart of what life is all about, go this way, make money, Pursue pleasure. Do this, do this, do this. And here in the background, the author of Hebrews is calling out, and I I pray you pay attention, younger kids in the room. It's calling you to understand only Jesus can satisfy your soul. You can have all the money in the world. I told you about the guy that was helicopter skiing in Alaska worth 17 billion that died two weeks ago. The helicopter went down. I don't know what he lived for. I pray he was a believer in Christ. But if he wasn't, sadly, that would be his testimony today, that it didn't matter that he had 17 billion. He could take fun trips. He could lead companies. He could have great assets. He could have a great portfolio. And in the end, it did not satisfy and meet the needs of his heart. And the author of Hebrews is calling these Jews that that are, are tempted to go back. And he's saying, look, Jesus is greater. He's greater than all that you can come up with in all the history of the Old Testament. And he is the only one that can give rest to your soul. There's nothing greater in life than to find rest for your soul. 
You see, you could have everything in life. I want you to imagine for a second. If you could have everything you wanted, what would it be? I mean, I, five things you could have. And let me ask you something. If you could have those five things, but you didn't have rest in your soul, you'd want to trade all five things in for the rest. You see, he's saying, look, th th there's, a, there's a creation rest. There's a promised land rest. But, but what he does now is he goes into a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest. Now, now what, what is happening here? When he goes into a Sabbath rest, I think in order to understand this, we have to go a little further and do a little digging into what the Sabbath was all about. You see, the Sabbath rest, I've got a, I know a guy that comes by the church a lot and, uh, and, and I've, I've developed a friendship with him. He calls me often and he's Seventh-day Adventist talks about the Sabbath a lot. He just misunderstands the gospel completely. And, and, and his focus on the Sabbath is in such a way that he misses the point of the Sabbath. You may be thinking, well, what do you mean? If you read this passage and you land only on a day of rest, you've misunderstood it. What he's speaking of here is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Uh, there's some fun passages in the scripture that demonstrate this. And you could go to um, one passage would be uh, Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And look at what Jesus says. Um, I tell you, something's greater than the temple is here. I love that statement. That, that is amazing. I mean, here they are. They love the temple. They love the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Here's this man saying, something's greater than the temple is here. It's like when he went into the uh, synagogue in Nazareth and he read the passage that was speaking about Messiah. And it, and it says he, he was done. He closed the book. <laughs> he sat down. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? You just read the passage in the daily prescribed reading of the synagogue and you're claiming that you're the one that fulfilled it. Wow. There's no doubt why they took up stones to kill him. Why? They knew that he was claiming to be God. They knew that he was claiming to be the one who fulfilled it. And see, look at Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And look what he does. These are what? Shadow. A shadow. Some people today get so caught up on the shadow, they miss the substance. You ever thought about that? There's so many people that are like, you know, uh, they're, they're messianic Christians or they're this kind of Christian or they're this kind of Christian. And you're like, wait a minute, get your eyes off the shadow and look at the substance. You're going so far back here, you can't get your eyes reversed over here. You can't get them fixated over here. And what he does here is he says, look, the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of our Sabbath rest. And really, as you get into this, I pray that you would get excited. Look at verse three, chapter four, verse three. He says, for we who have believed 
enter that rest. Now, this is present tense, meaning we who have believed continuously are entering into that rest. A couple of things I want you to think about here. In one aspect of this verse, I think what he's saying is explained there in verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Wow, this is, here's a question this morning. Have you rested from your work and are you resting in his work? Some people are wearing themselves out. I want you to think about it. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? There's different motivations. I, this may be a terrible analogy, but it just keeps coming to my mind. Imagine that we were all Right now, uh, I remember going into basketball in, in college in my freshman year, and I was lazy all summer, and I got to, to uh, I checked in, and it was in September, and we had to be on the track at 6 a.m., and he told us to run a mile, and I was busting out, and I got done, and he was like, that was a warm-up mile. I wanted to cry like a baby. I was out of shape, unprepared. If I said right now, okay, y'all, y'all are all on a, you're all trying out for a cross-country team. Can you think of anything more awful? <laughs> that, um, and I said, we are going to have to run a time trial right now. I have great respect for runners. I just never could do it. And, uh, and I said, we're going to run, and we got to get to Walmart, and you've got how many, what is it? Walmart's probably what, 1.5 miles, 1.8 miles, 2 miles? We got, okay, 2 miles. Maybe not, but just imagine. And two miles, and I say, you've got 12 minutes to get there. And if you don't get there, there's going to be major repercussions. And it's going to be ugly. And you really are like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. I'm like, we provided running shoes for everybody here. Don't panic. We get your size out, and we get you. Everybody goes and changes, and we're all outside. And I'm like, all right. And uh, Charlie shoots the gun off in the air, and here we go. Now, you're running, and there is a... There's a difference in that type of running than when you're at the beach. Been at the beach for a week and a half, waking up leisurely. And one morning you look out there and it's beautiful and you say, man, I think I'm going to go for a run on the ocean today. There's different motivations in there. It's a different perspective. It's no different than in religion. You see, those that don't understand the gospel of grace, they do what they do to earn God's favor. But those who've received the grace of God, who no longer are working to earn his favor, they're resting in his work. Now they do what they do because of God's favor. You see the difference? It's drastic. It looks the same on the surface. It's drastic. He's saying, look, there's a Sabbath rest where you come to the reality that you are now made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, where you now are set free. Your future, your identity, when you stand before God the Father, you will be accepted as God the Son is. Why? Because his righteousness covers you. It, it's a freedom of, I no longer have to work. I no longer have to earn. I no longer have to perform. I am at rest because my hope, my dependence, my trust is in Jesus. That's what he speaks of. But, but I want you to think about something. There, there's another type, I think, that is, that's involved in this. It's not just a perspective in present rest, 
It's a practical rest. I want to ask you something. Many of you rest in that identity in Christ, but let me ask you something. Are you living out of his rest right now? Ask yourself that question. Am I living out of his rest? And you may be like, what does that mean? I think now you begin to pull in other passages of the scripture. It would be similar to putting on the new man. It would be similar to being filled with the spirit. It would be similar to allowing Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. It would be similar to abiding in Christ. You see, I'll give you an example. You can't be in a process of being conformed to the ways of the world and walk in a practical sense of the rest of God. You had any temptations later, lately? As you give into those temptations and you run after sin, while you are positionally at rest because of your justification, are you experiencing rest as you choose to go after your lust? Uh-uh. But when do you experience God's rest actively and in the present experientially as a Christian? As you walk in his grace, in his provision, in his promise, as you abide, as you face temptation, and as you say, God, I can't do that, but God, I'm going to yield to your word. What happens? You experience rest. What happens when you deal with anxiety and you're overwhelmed at all kinds of things to be worried about and the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. And as you lift those burdens and put them on Christ, what happens? You experience rest. What happens when you're living life interpersonally and you're dealing with conflict and rather than blow up at somebody, you look to the scripture And you say, God, I can't have this attitude you tell me to have, but God, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to submit to you. What are you doing? You're hearing the good news with what? Belief. Belief. And you actively walk and experience the rest of Christ. And I believe with all my heart that here he's doing several different things. He's speaking of rest that brings you into salvation He's speaking of rest that is, you know, that which rest that gives you a confidence that you don't have to work because he's worked for you, but he's also calling you to actively experience the rest that he offers in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and how comforting would it have been to Christians who are being persecuted, who are even possibly fearful of death, that he calls out to them and reminds them that there is rest available to them in Jesus Christ. I wonder today, are you you walking in rest? Is this foreign to you? Or is this something you say, amen, I'm actively living out of it because I think what's happening here, it's a challenge and a conviction to those that are playing games with God to come to Christ in saving faith. But it's a call for Christians to live out of the reality of who they are, to rest in his grace, to rest in his work, and to rest in him as I walk obedient to him, as I walk submitted to him. I love what uh, Paul Tripp says here. He says, so instead of wasting time on that endless quest for life, you've been invited to enter into God's rest for the rest of your life. Rest in your identity as his child. Rest in his eternal love. Rest in his powerful grace. 
Rest in his constant presence and faithful provision. Rest in his patience and forgiveness. Rest. And there's no better way and no more glorious way to experience his active rest day to day than simply obeying and submitting to his word. There's a freedom. There's a freedom. There's a rest. Finally, this morning, we see that there's a fourth type of rest. And that fourth type of rest is a future, eternal rest. It's an eternal rest. Creation rest, promised land rest, Sabbath rest, eternal rest. This is so amazing because there's a sense here that it's already but not yet. There's a sense here that there remaineth a Sabbath rest. That you enter into, you continually enter in that rest. You experience it. You rest in his work, not your own. You rest in his provision of grace, not your own. You rest in his promise, not your own. But what's happening as you live this Christian life, you're also looking forward to the ultimate rest. You're looking forward to the culmination of that rest in the new heavens and the new earth. I tell you, what would happen if... Uh, our hearts would be overwhelmed with this truth. Because uh, if you live like this is all there is, it has a drastic effect on what you do. You ever wonder why different people in retirement act differently? Some people, they make it their lifelong goal to you know, collect sand on the ocean. And other people live completely different in retirement. What is the difference? I think, honestly, some by the grace of God, Christians realize that my ultimate Sabbath rest is not my 70s, 80s, and 90s in my 401k, in my portfolio. My ultimate rest is the world to come. My ultimate hope is not here. My ultimate hope, it's not that I don't enjoy the blessings God's given me, but even as I enjoy the blessings he's given me in my retirement on this earth, you ought to you live with a different mindset than people that don't know Christ. You live with a hope. You live with an understanding there's more to come. And he does this all through Hebrews, Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You begin here, he wants these persecuted Christians to understand there's more, there's more, there's more. Be comforted, there's more. There's more to come. You know, you get to certain places in life, you're like, man, my 20s are gone, my 30s are gone, my 40s are almost gone. Some of you are like, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> They're all gone. <laughs> but you know what happens? You begin to get thrilled by the promises of God because he's saying, look, look at the rest of God. There's more, there's more, there's more. And I think what happens to people going through persecution and great trial, you're tempted, aren't we? We're tempted to go, man, this is rough. And you're tempted rather than put your eyes up, you're tempted to put them down and you're tempted to be overwhelmed. But here, this Sabbath rest has to be involved because the context of what's coming up in Hebrews, you see Hebrews 11.35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Wow. 
You ever heard people say this? This is what commonly is said. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they believe, if someone dies, may they rest in peace. Biblically, that's not a foregone conclusion. The only people that rest in peace are the people who heard the good news and received it with belief. And those who heard the good news and received it with unbelief, they have no resting after they die. They face the judgment of God. You see the urgency here? It may be tempting to go, you know what? This is all fine and good, but I've got a lot of landscaping to do this afternoon. I've got to go eat. I'm hungry. One of the greatest deceptions of our life is that when God is speaking to our heart, we have something else to do. Take great labor to deal with God, to go before God and say, God, would you reveal my heart? God, would you teach me to walk in your rest? God, would you give me a hope and an identity in Christ that is so fixed on your work for me that I live in a place of rest? That God, I'm so compelled by what you've done in your work that now I'm compelled to die to myself and live obedient to your word and to walk actively in your rest, to walk in it, to live out of it. I pray today that's, that's all our prayer. Three questions as we leave. Number one, have you come to salvation rest? You may be here today thinking, you know what? I don't think I have. I signed a card. I walked an aisle. I raised my hand in an emotional youth meeting. But I've never followed God with belief. There's no belief in my life. There's nothing the word of God even changes in me. Today, I've got good news. Today, this invitation is still there. I love this because it's the kindness of God, Romans 2 says, that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. And today, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've never felt this way in response to God's word and an invitation like this, and God is compelling you, today, believe on Christ. Today, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to respond to the good news of the message with belief. You can't see that because that's mysterious and that's behind the scenes. But today, understand, believe on him, trust in him, cast yourself on him. Say, oh God, I believe in you. Oh God, I want to live out of your rest. Oh God, I want to walk in this rest. And don't look back and run right after it. By his grace. Number two, are you living out of the rest you have in Jesus? Is your, law, is your life right now miserable as a Christian because you're living not according to your identity in Christ, but you're living in a way of being conformed to this world? Are you out of the word of God? Are you living just floating along? Today, it's the kindness of God. You say, how in the world can God sanctify a man or a woman or a boy or a girl? You know why? The Holy Spirit is faithful and the Holy Spirit speaks to his, through his word. And I've been there, you've been there, maybe it's for you today. And all of us, I pray that we sense God urging us along, calling us to follow him, calling us to be in his word, calling us to pay close attention to what we've heard. As chapter two says. And the final question I want to ask you is, are you living in light of your eternal rest? 
Maybe today you're, you're overwhelmed. I pray you gain encouragement. I pray you just go, oh God, would you lift my eyes? I remember David, after he went through all of that sin, he says that God is the one who lifted his head. And sometimes that's what we need, isn't it? We need God to lift our heads so that we can see, that we can see reality according to his word. And today, don't live without considering and without meditating, without rejoicing in the promised Sabbath rest that is to come. A lot of things to chew on. But hey, today, man, isn't it the kindness of God that he, he keeps saying, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, do you realize that God is, is speaking to us in his word? How precious an opportunity to respond. And he's calling us to do it with urgency. So today, would you bow your heads? And I want you to ask yourself, how is God speaking to me in his word how is God speaking to me in his word today? And whatever the answer is, I, here's my, my prayer or my request for you. I want you just to run to Jesus and say, oh Lord, help me not to receive what you are showing me in your word with an attitude and a response of unbelief. But oh God, by your grace, may I respond in belief today. Lord, I thank you for uh, this passage. And Lord, I thank you, God, that, Lord, I pray that this would be our experience and our reality. Oh, Lord, it's sobering, Lord, to think that there are people that are completely self-deceived. I pray, oh, God, you give his eyes to see. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, we could have true discernment. God, thank you that you're better. And Lord, thank you for showing us how your supremacy is worked out in just real life. God, thank you that you're the only one that can meet our needs. You're the only one that can satisfy our souls. I pray, oh God, that we respond by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.